Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. We've had a little break, a slightly longer break than we intended over the summer, but we are now back. Uh, we're going to be back, I think, uh, not with a weekly podcast, but we're aiming for approximately fortnightly. Um, so you will want to be subscribed to make sure that you catch every episode. I'm really thrilled to be joined today, not just by Lee Gatis, Director of Church Society, a regular guest on the podcast, but also by Dr. Kirsten Burkett. Uh, Kirsty is uh, doing some work for us at the moment as the theological consultant to Church Society. And I'm sure many of you know her uh, from uh, all sorts of work that she's done over the years. Um, Lee and Kirsty have both spent this week or large chunks of this week getting their heads around uh, the Living in Love and Faith resources that were published uh, on Monday. Those uh, resources have been long awaited, I think it's fair to say, postponed and delayed for various reasons, but they are now out. There's a book, there's a whole lot of other stuff. It's too much, I think, to have really delved deep into all of it uh, just in these last few days. Lee, I wonder if you just maybe start by explaining some of the process that has got us to this point. Yes, thank you. Well, it is massive. It's a 450 page book. It's a five week course. There are 50 or so detailed scholarly papers online in a library. Um, plus 30 hours or so of videos and podcasts. And not only that, Ros, as you know, there's an, already an array of initial responses and comments from various Anglican bloggers and tweeters, and even from some non-Anglican bloggers who are obsessed with commenting on a church they want nothing to do with, but can't seem to stop pontificating about, like someone who endlessly talks about their ex-girlfriend that they insist they're not in love with anymore, honest. So, it, you know, it's hard to keep, keep on top of all this material, which has taken about three years for the Church of England to, to get to. About 40 or so people, I think, have been involved in the process of developing these resources for the Church of England um, at the, the bishops and archbishops instigation. So it's been a long process, it's been a long time coming, uh, and here we are, here we are now. Um, yeah. I was at a meeting earlier this week and a, and a bishop said, uh, someone who'd been involved in, in developing these things, that, that we must keep looking at God's word on this subject, which sounded a good thing to say, because uh, she said, obviously, we have not done a good enough job yet. We need to climb down from our positions and listen to each other, she said. So uh, hold your convictions provisionally and keep learning. And I was reminded when she said that of Paul telling Timothy that some people will always be learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. How, you know, false teachers give us chewing gum in place of food. I mean, we've had yes. loads of reports and stuff and statements on this over the last 40 years. There was one in 1979 on homosexual relationships. We had issues in human sexuality. We had some issues in human sexuality in 2000 something. Then we had the pilling reports. We've had synod motions, the Lambeth Conference, pastoral statements by the bishops, a faith and order commission reports on marriage. I've got a shelf full of books 
from various perspectives. I don't think we can be accused of not having considered these issues recently mm. or of having adopted positions without some thought. Yes, and that there is certainly a sense, at least from some, that the what the real question is not just um, we must keep listening and considering, but that we must keep doing that until we get the answer that they want. Um, right. And that there is a desired end goal. I don't think. When do we stop? Say, when do I don't we think stop? It's to say that that's true of everybody who has been involved in the process, but yeah. you can certainly sense that for some people, that is their agenda. Kirsty, um, I mean, it is only a first look, as I say, at, at the sort of enormous amount of material that's been published. I wonder if you can tell us something about what you've noticed regarding the sort of underlying theological approach. What? How do we hear God's voice? How do we do that? listening and discerning his will how is the process and the the book they've produced suggest that we should actually find those answers yeah that's a really interesting question Roz um I must say uh reading through the book there's a lot of it that you could say is actually pretty good and I think if you were reading this without particular background you'd say well yeah that they've described well the biblical doctrine of marriage and they describe well what the bible says about creation and holiness and a number of things uh, and they do say we are deliberately not answering the questions that we're raising and they actually do identify the questions pretty well um, is it the case that uh, different sexualities uh, well, we know they exist, but what does that mean? Does it mean that this is just another good part of God's creation and the diversity in creation? Or does it mean that some parts of creation reflect brokenness and not the way things ought to be? And, and where are we going to place um, sexuality? Uh, so they are identifying the questions well. The interesting thing is that they completely and constantly fail to say, scripture actually does address these questions pretty clearly. There has been quite a um, determined tradition, not just in the Church of England, but arising from the whole range of different sources over the past several decades, that um, what you need to do in order to hear God's voice is not specifically read scripture. Scripture is a resource, certainly, but you discern God's voice through people, through their lived experience, uh, through our experience of the world, through other voices that come through. Uh, and this process of theological reflection is not taking the truths of scripture and understanding what they say to the world, but it's rather listening to the world and scripture becomes one resource as we discern what God is saying to us through this situation. Mm. It, it is fundamentally shifting where you think the authoritative um, sound of God's voice comes to you. Yes, and, and in a way that um, makes it very difficult for there to be consensus, actually. You know, all our experiences are different all those voices that we hear from the world in different ways will will vary and so you can kind of see how if that's the method that you're using you've spent you know however many 30 or 40 or 50 
is talking around this stuff and we're still <laughs> talking around it and we're still not agreeing because we're not agreeing yeah. actually where do we get the answer from and even if we're agreeing that the answer comes from all of those different things well those are going to be different answers for all of us mm. um i think one thing i was encouraged to see um in the chapter on scripture i've not read the whole thing i've read bits of it but in the chapter on scripture that that sense of there's a different i don't know there's seven or eight different positions aren't there articulated seven with yeah. with how yeah with respect to how we view god's word and and all of those positions give some credence to the idea of it being god's word but they don't all mean the same thing by that lee you're raising your eye about yeah. that do you want to say a bit more about that well, I mean, I think I agree that it does, it makes a reasonable effort to present different opinions on these subjects in a way that's respectful and clear. It rehearses the differences quite well and helps unpack why some conversations on all of this go the way that they do because of the different seven different uh, ways of looking at scripture that they talk about. So I do think it can succeed in helping us have an informed discussion on the issues of sexuality and marriage if we don't know much about it already or haven't heard the other side of an argument articulated well it's not very good at assessing the validity of different arguments though or of analyzing them to see if they're true or not mm -hmm. so you know on the usual bib biblical texts about sexuality there's a section on uh, leviticus and judges um on 1 corinthians 6 and 1 timothy 1 and, and other places um we read the traditional view is this, and then we're told, but some argue or some have said. Now, the opposing views are not referenced very well. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd. I did actually read all the footnotes. There's only one commentary cited in all of the footnotes. There's a lot of citations of very esoteric stuff in those footnotes, but there's only one Bible commentary ever cited there, and it's hardly... Hmm. It is hardly an in-depth engagement in exegesis of the texts, but there's very little in the way of assessment apparent here, uh, you know, of this he said, she said scholarly argument. So many readers will be left confused. And straight after that exposition of the different ways of reading these seven texts, we, we get an exposition of four, Romans 14 straight away on how we're meant to be bearing with each other when we disagree, as if... This was a secondary issue, like whether we should celebrate Ascension Day or All Souls Day or not. This is a very convenient and attractive solution. It just seems to me that the Bible might have more to say about how we handle false teaching mm -hmm. on issues of human salvation. Yes, it's interesting, isn't you know, it? LLF actually contains... Go on. So it actually contains um, well over 500 question marks. Mm. If you if you count them up, yeah, um, of many of which are not followed by answers. Yeah. So it's good at throwing up dust to confuse and bewilder and exasperate. It's good at stimulating, but not so good at giving solid food. Loving means listening and learning. That's true. That's true. But loving also means teaching and warning mm. and other things. As well. Yes, it's interesting in the in the sort of run up to this uh, coming out, and it's obviously been an issue that's been on agenda, the agenda for some time. 
a lot of people on the sort of more liberal and progressive side have wanted to try and talk about the language of mutual flourishing with respect to this issue, haven't they? And, and that is the language we have in the Church of England with respect to the issue of women's uh, ordination and women's consecration as bishops. And I find it profoundly unhelpful. You know, I, I can want the flourishing of a, a uh, of the ministry of a woman you know I can pray for that and encourage her in that and you know if she's teaching the gospel I may disagree with the role precisely in which she's doing that but I want her gospel ministry to flourish and you know and I, I hope she feels the same about my ministry but I can't want a ministry to flourish that is not a gospel ministry that is not calling people to repent from their sin for example and I can't just agree to disagree even if they were to agree to disagree with me I can't agree to disagree with them and and so I just don't think those sort of that same sort of language and and solution is is going to work is it and and it's interesting you say that the, the book is kind of pr pushing perhaps towards that uh bearing with and and learning to disagree and and so on um but not all of it that's, that's interesting. I don't know if this is um, the effect of different authors coming through. You, I think you can sometimes discern different points of view coming through in the different um, parts of the book. Um, I mean, some of it is quite straightforward in saying these positions are incompatible. We have to come to a decision. And this is the question that has to be answered, or these are the questions that have to be answered. And I think they in some parts at least, they analyze that very accurately. Great. Yeah. What we need to ask is how are we going to come to a decision? And if the decision is, well, actually the traditional view is the right one, will people accept that? Yeah. As, well, we've answered it and that's the answer and anything yeah. else is wrong. Yes, that's, that, that's quite very open. interesting. I think those two things are sort of what I was hoping for um, from the book, firstly, that there would be a recognition that this issue of sexuality is actually an issue about scripture and, and what we think of scripture and how we, we take, uh, how we discern God's will from scripture and how seriously we take that. But also the recognition that, that there is genuine real difference in a way that is not simply compatible by finding some form of words or finding some, you know, via media or whatever actually we have to come to, to face the fact that, that we think very differently. So mm. you know, there are groups in the church that think very differently on this matter and think differently for real theological reasons, you know, not based on our prejudice or our experience or, or any of those things, but actually think differently because we think differently about the Bible and because we think differently about the gospel. Mm. And that's why they can't be hung together in that sort of way. Yeah, but ultimately, having read this, I would say there is absolutely nothing in living in love and faith which warrants a change in the church's doctrine or practice. Nothing. It simply fails to present a sufficient case to justify revision, hmm. which is why, of course, uh, there are leading liberal advocates online this week already saying this is all um, just an attempt to delay progress on LGBT equality in the church. It's homophobic in its very structure. It's promoting anti-gay voices, they say. 
LGBT people should not engage with the content of LLF. Some of them are saying it's just a trap that leads to delay. Instead, they should expend their energy in getting elected to synods and committees and passing motions in those things to affect change on the ground. Mm. Um, because they know that there's nothing in this report and in the scriptures which ultimately will justify a revision and they have to push it through by some kind of power play rather than mm. persuasion the of, of the truth. That's very interesting. So that, I mean, that was going to be my, my sort of next question, having uh, engaged with this uh, to at least some extent. Do you have a sense of what the, the publication and the resources and the team behind that are aiming for if it doesn't seem to be making the case in that strong explicit way for change nonetheless obviously presenting views of those who do want change but but not actually outright arguing for that is there a sense of what they are trying to do with it yes Yes, I, I mean, from my point of view, in a time of national crisis with COVID-19 and the economic impact of that, as well as persistent decline in church going and imminent diocesan bankruptcies, we need more arguments about sexuality like we need a hole in the head. Mm. Um, but living in love and faith is meant to be different. So when I asked some of those involved in it, what exactly is different about this? Their main answer is that LLF will now enable us to have healthy and much better ways of talking about these things. Uh, so that's the idea is that this will give us a better vocabulary, a better understanding so we can have a better conversation. Though of course, leading advocates of doctrinal and practical change have already taken to social media to call the whole thing homophobic and harmful. And they've started raising money to put advocates of traditional teaching on trial for their abusive teaching. I mean, I think, but I think the intention was otherwise. Having yeah. better conversations and better vocabulary to have those conversations with. I mean, that sounds to me like not a bad thing. I think there are still a lot of churches and a lot of people in our churches who don't know how to begin to have a conversation about this, particularly if there's somebody in the room who is lesbian or gay or, you know, has some other identity. And, and I think... We, we probably do need to listen and be educated into how having those conversations. And to some extent in being able to have good conversations with Christians with whom we disagree. I don't know, Kirsty, whether you felt similarly about that and whether there's stuff in that that you think might actually have some value. Uh, I think it could do because it is so honest about these are real disagreements. Mm. Uh, these are not just differences in style and it's not just homophobia or uh, radical activism. Um, you know, there are real differences of substance. Yeah. And so if you wanted something to point people to, to say, look, read that, because it does pretty fairly um, present the conservative view, at least I would say as a conservative, yes, I would say I'm... I'm pretty happy for this to be representing my view. Um, and if it's too difficult to speak to someone to try and explain what, what you think and why, um, you, you could point to them uh, towards this resource. 
And uh, I mean, as you say, it is important to listen to people. Uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who experience confused feelings and are not the activists trying to change everything, but just don't really know how they're meant to respond, yeah. who, who maybe want to serve God. And they've got these people saying, well, uh, you can be out and proud and God will love you for that. And others saying, no, that's something you need to repent of. Yeah. We do need to listen to people properly before we can yeah. speak to them lovingly. And <clears throat> that's something that a church should do. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I was very fortunate in my young days as a Christian to be in a church where uh, it was okay to talk about things that ministers were prepared to have these conversations and they would let safe at the front we are prepared to have these conversations it's okay to talk about these things come and talk to us um, not all churches do that because people just get embarrassed and awkward they don't know what to say they'd rather avoid it I mean wouldn't we all we'd rather that this just go away and we don't have to talk about it anymore yeah um but yeah, if it does help us do that, that's good. And I also think perhaps as well for the slightly older generation, you know, people, um, you know, maybe whose children are dealing with those kind of questions and confusions and, and you know, they want to be able to listen appropriately to their child in a way that is loving and generous and kind, but also still to be able to understand um, what the Bible says on this and, and be able to think about how can I have that conversation with somebody I care about very deeply that shows them I still care about them but also recognizes that there are differences in the way that I, I respond to it and can help the, their child you yeah. know, come to a better choice on that. Yeah. I think when you look at some of the video material as well that's coming out uh, and I, I confess I have not looked at all of that yet, but it's just the way that some of it is presented and the power of stories and of individuals like that. I mean, I worry that we're being pushed towards accepting the ultimate authority, not of the scriptures, but of the self, yeah. that we're coaxed through these um, audiovisual resources into accepting the overpowering rule of emotions mm. and experience, which leads us into a sort of subjective and pluralist view of truth. But it is worth engaging with all of this from an evangelical and orthodox point of view, because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And how can people hear the life changing gospel unless somebody proclaims it to them with graciousness and uncompromising kindness? Paul said to Timothy that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome and those who oppose him, he must gently instruct so even if it's people who vigorously and actively oppose everything that we think the bible says we must still try to speak and gently yeah. instruct we may learn something from the process i certainly have learned things from reading um reading this material hmm. um but our job is to gently engage yes and I'm pray so pray that god would use it i have not read the whole book yet I've read bits of it and I, I certainly haven't watched all the videos the thing that I did read all the way through was the five-week course that they have produced and I mean slightly it makes my heart sink it's it's very as you might expect light in its bible handling so there is a bible passage each week and there are one or two questions reflecting on that and then there's a whole load of of other stuff to talk about and I, I'm not saying I think I could honestly commend it 
to anyone to think this is a course we must use to help our people do this. But I, I would encourage you if you're somewhere where perhaps um, within your deanery or, you know, in a sort of place where where, you know, people who have different views on this are going to do the course then it would be really valuable to go along and do exactly those kinds of things that Lee has just been talking about, gently to encourage and correct and point people to the Bible and, and help them to, to see. It's very non-directive in lots of ways, you know, and, and you, you know, exactly that sort of thing, Kirstie, of, of doing theological reflection and listening to other voices. But there's no reason why you couldn't go and be one of those voices that is pointing people to the Lord in this. Um, yeah, so so I'm not commending it for use, but there, there may well be times where it's really valuable um, to go and be a part of such a group. The other thing I noticed, which I think it also has at the end of the book, is that it invites everybody to respond. So it mm. suggests that you might write a blog post and send them the link, or you might video yourself, or I don't know. I mean, you could probably, you know, design an interpretive dance and send them that if you wanted to but you are certainly yeah. invited to respond yes. um Lee if you could give us a sense this is not the end of the process so you said you know we've had several years that has resulted in this but this is not the end <laughs> I mean it feels like it will never end but what is going to happen if people do respond what's the sort of timeline for for the next stage in the process and where is this going there is a timeline um, for responses to all of this. The, there is a, a sort of postscript at the end of the book from the archbishops um, imploring us to be part of a process of discernment uh, of the back of LLF. Um, now, I know that this won't be possible for us to engage in immediately. Um, already, I've heard of diocesan and bishops uh, saying there's no way we're getting to this until spring in my diocese. Uh, somebody, I mean, one bishop I read had already written something to his diocese to say that. Another bishop I spoke to this week said, I'm exhausted already. I don't want to have to do this until at least Easter. Um, but it, it will be coming in the next six months or so, some sort of process in the dioceses to discuss it um, and to see what people are saying. It's not an immediate thing. You don't have to read it this week uh, and start it all this week. We've got Christmas to get through, a COVID Christmas. You know, that's more than enough for us to think about, isn't it? Um, but at some point, there will be discussions in the dioceses. Um, the ultimate plan is that in 2022, once we have a new general synod elected at the end of 2021, in 2022, there will be something coming to synod um, as some kind of action follow up. But it's very open as to what that might be. There's no suggestions. There's no liturgy being written and suggested in the book for us to, to suddenly adopt for same-sex marriages. We're not there. So it's, it's at least um, outwardly an open process of discernment. So again, I would just say there's nothing in this book which warrants a change in the church's doctrine and practice. It fails to present a case to justify revision, but we should engage in that process of discernment giving a positive, biblical, orthodox, evangelical um, response to LLF in order to feed into that process so that the bishops hear from us and from the people in our churches, from whatever sexuality, backgrounds and interests they have, so that we're not overwhelmed just by activist voices. 
Great. And I guess this is a question for, for both of you, really. If you were um, standing up in your church on Sunday or perhaps at a PCC meeting in the next week or so, what would you be saying uh, to the people in your church about LLF? What might you be encouraging them to pray or to do or what might you want them to know um, about LLF at this point? Well, I think I would not necessarily say everyone has to read the book. It is long and it's, um, uh, I mean, it's quite well written, but there's a lot of content there. There's a lot to take in. But I would, um, I would want people to know what's in that. I think I'd, I'd give a, a summary and I might point to particular sections that, that's useful to read. And I think pray that the questions will actually be answered. I mean, one way or the other, let's actually have an answer and, and know where we stand, but especially to pray that they would be answered biblically and realise that Jesus is not just one voice amongst many here. He is the voice we must listen to. Yes, wouldn't it be great to get to a, a settled position where, mm -hmm. where we're not having to go through all this again uh, in another process in five years' time? Lee, would you add anything to that? I think in the video that um, I did uh, a couple of weeks ago, helping people to prepare for what was coming in LLF, I said that the, the reason we open our minds, and it's good to have an open mind about things and to listen to what people say, but the reason we open our minds is the same as the reason we open our mouths. It's to close them again on something solid so that we're built up and edified and uh, fed. And I think we need to listen to what's being said, um, and then we need to close our mouths on something solid mm -hmm. and I think that's what we would need in our churches it's all very well to hear experiences from other people and other points of view but we need some solid food some teaching that is clear and helpful and pastorally applied into all these situations so that people have a clear way forward and a clear understanding of what the bible says and what god wants from us so that we might live lives that are pleasing to him because ultimately this isn't about pleasing us and what is best for us um, or even how we might reach our nation by watering things down or whatever it's about how can we live lives that are pleasing to God despite the fact that we are sinful fallen human beings and there's a great way forward in the gospel that Jesus has died to take the punishment for our sin we can be right with him by repenting of our sins and turning to him in faith and trust and love and following his way in obedience. And we can then know forgiveness and freedom and joy in that way. All of us have fallen, particularly in these areas of sexuality. We've all done things, thought things, said things um, and struggle with these things. But there is a way that Jesus has provided through his death and resurrection. And that's something that all our churches need to hear about. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, there will be a whole lot of resources coming out to help you uh, as ministers to think about how to handle this with your church and as, as church members to understand the issues. Uh, there's a, a video that CEC have produced, which I think is going to be on general release next week and some resources yeah. that go with that. Kirsty is going to be uh, writing various things for us and uh, I think producing some video resources on this and other issues as well. So do look out for those. Um, 
and uh, it's not quite too late uh, to sign up if you want to hear Lee and Kirsty talking about this a bit more and also uh, Mark Burkhill uh, who will be speaking about this in a Renew webinar on Monday afternoon and I'll put the link if you want to register for that uh, in the notes uh, at the end of this episode. Thank you so much, both of you, uh, for joining us. Uh, we will be back on the podcast in a week or two's time uh, when we're going to be meeting our two new regional directors, Chris Moore and Tony Cannon, and also hearing a little bit from George Crowder about his ongoing work as regional director too. See you then.